the Anesthesia Podcast. Good afternoon, everyone. Malignant hypothermia is a rare anaesthetic emergency. It's been estimated to occur in between 1 in 10,000 and 1 in 150,000 general anaesthetics. But there's actually quite a lot of uncertainty about the precision of these estimates. The Association of Anaesthetists has recently published a full MH guideline um, in the journal Anaesthesia. And in the absence of any recent guidelines published in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, rather than simply updating the previous crisis management laminates, uh, there was a working party responsible for this, and it's great to see that guideline now fully in print. Uh, the scope of the guidelines are extended to include practical guidance for anaesthetists dealing with cases of suspected MH once the acute reaction has been uh, reversed, which is new. Uh, with us today, we're delighted to have the lead author of the paper, Professor Phil Hopkins from the Malignant Hypothermia Unit at St. James's University Hospital and also the University of Leeds. Uh, so hi to you, Professor Hopkins. Hello. Um, but we're also uh, delighted to have with us um, uh, Connor Phillips. Uh, Connor's an award-winning television presenter, BBC radio presenter, writer, live event host. His broadcasting work includes sport, entertainment, current affairs, film, music, travel, comedy and property. Um, Connor and, and, and a lot of his family have actually been affected by MH, so his uh, experience and insights into this rare condition will be of interest to us all. Uh, so welcome, Phil. Welcome, Connor. Uh, it's great to have you both with us. Um, I'm going to start with a question for Professor Hopkins, um, which is about the guideline. So why was this guideline developed and, and what's different about it from previous versions? Well, you've already mentioned that it's uh, the first time that the association has uh, published a full guideline. Up until now, there's been, I think, about four or five iterations of um, laminated sheets that are intended to be displayed in every um, anaesthetic room and indeed at every location where general anaesthesia is given in the in the UK um, and they were uh, intended to help anaesthetists manage a rare crisis um, as a series of steps in, a, in an aid memoir. Um, but the last one was published in 2011 and since then, we have uh, observed, unfortunately, that there still have been some deaths caused by malignant hypothermia in the UK, and that's the same the world over. Um, and there have also been some uh, useful advances in the management of malignant hypothermia and malignant hypothermia patients. And uh, everyone involved in the guideline thought it would be useful to go a little bit further than um, a simple uh, aid memoir and provide a narrative uh, backdrop to the guidelines. So the, the previous laminate was um, really dealing with the crisis situation. Uh, now we have got um, an updated version of that laminate. Um, we've also got information for anaesthetists um, on how to manage a patient who is known to have malignant hypothermia and who needs general anaesthetic for whatever reason, be that uh, for surgery or for a diagnostic procedure. Um, and we've, as you said, um, produced some information for anaesthetists to help them um, do everything that they should be doing following um, a successful management of an MH crisis. Because one of the key things, obviously, that I'm dealing with is the follow-up um, to patients suspected of having had a malignant hypothermia reaction. And the information that we get um, is crucial. So 
uh, we've um, provided templates for anaesthetists to provide us with information, to provide the patient with information so that they can disseminate that to their family and explain what MH is uh, and explain the implications for the family. And we've also um, provided a template for a letter to go to the patient's GP because most GPs have not heard of MH, which is quite understandable. And I guess um, many of us now more uh, these days are aware of malignant hyperthermia, those you know, of us who are anaesthetists or uh, working in operating theatres, but is it still fair to say that those that don't, aren't anaesthetists and those people who don't work in operating theatres um, don't really, probably not heard of it or, or understand the um, importance of it or the clinical consequences of uh, MH and why it's so serious? Well, I think... Um... Obviously, what, what, one thing that we are concerned about is the expansion of use of anaesthetic drugs. And these are the drugs that are implicated in triggering malignant hyperthermia beyond the operating theatre. Um, so they are now used, for example, for sedation in intensive care, um, for sedation in um, the dental surgery or the dental hospitals, um, and also sedation by emergency uh, medicine physicians in um, the A&E department. Mm. Um, fortunately, most of the people who are administering these drugs have had some training in anaesthesia, so they will be aware um, of MH. Um, but uh, it is apparent from our experience that for others, a minority, I, I suspect, that their knowledge is a little bit patchy. Mm. And Connor, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, as our um, first participant on one of these broadcasts, is isn't anaesthetist, it's great to have you along. And I think I hope that that uh, becomes a theme uh, that we continue when we uh, do these broadcasts in the future. Um, so first of all, can you tell us um, how you found out about malignant hyperthermia, but also a little about yours and your family's experiences? Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, it's It's a fascinating thing to for, for me to dig a little bit deeper into something that we've had in our family for nigh on 30 years um it was 1990 and a cousin of mine went in to get an ear operation done just your st standard enough ear operation before she started secondary school uh and there was an issue and uh, i was a couple of years younger than her. i was like nine or ten and when you get told by your parents that your cousin lisa's Quite sick at the moment. As a nine or ten year old, you're thinking, "Oh, she she must have the flu, or she must have a couple of couple of sniffles," and you don't recognise it. And, and so, not until subsequent years till you recognise that it was very very serious. Um, the antidote to what Lisa required at the time um, was very scarce, specifically in Ireland at the time. And from talking to the the medical experts in my family, some of who are real medical experts, some who are think they're medical experts. Um, there was a lot of the antidote used up just for this one case. Now I come from a massive family. The family, it's, it's through my mother's side, the Murphy side. Uh, my mom's one of 13. Um, out of the 13 brothers and sisters she has, uh, 12 have been tested. One is no longer with us anymore. He passed away a number of years ago. And it's just been this constant process of some of the elder members of the family going and getting the muscle biopsy done. Um, to try and determine whether they are positive uh, with malignant hypothermia. Some getting the blood test. Uh, generationally, there's been a bit of a shift where 
the muscle biopsy was seen as the only way to actually get a, a, a very distinct result. Whereas in recent years, we're seeing more advances in, in how the blood tests actually can verify a positive test, sometimes not a negative test. But we are lucky in the fact that we've had one case which was incredibly serious, but in essence, that incredibly serious case, thankfully, um, there was a good news story. Um, Lisa did get over it. She's now living in Scotland, a very successful vet. Uh, she's probably watching this now with her lovely daughter uh, and her Scotty dog as well. And I imagine a lot of the Murphy clan are watching this as well. But we kind of live within this little haze of not really knowing as much about malignant hypothermia as we would like. I even put it up on a family WhatsApp group earlier on, what would people like to know? And I was quite surprised by the amount of information that we need because as much as we have first-hand experience, second-hand and maybe third-hand experience, because with my mom being one of 13, that means there's around 40 first cousins. And of those 40 first cousins, most have had offspring. And now there's this swathe of people looking to see if they can get information for their younger generation to see exactly what the situation is. So it was a welcome uh, invite to be on this today, just to, to find out, get information, and I suppose share experiences. Yeah. Um, what would you say are the top things that you'd like to know a little bit more about? Because you've got a, um, a, a international round expert uh, with us here, and, and uh, I can I can inform you that's uh, quite confident that's not me. Um, yeah. Professor Hopkins <laughs> here, you can ask some, ask some questions to you if you want. Yeah, I think at this stage, I think um, why this was felt very important to me, we had uh, our first little boy eight weeks ago, uh, baby Finn. My sister had her first little boy uh, exactly four months ago today. Um, many of my cousins, um, my cousin Rory, for example, is about to have his first child. My cousin Kevin, who sent me a message this morning, he's got three children. And it's about us as parents now doing what our parents did, but I suppose us having the access. Look, here I am on a Zoom call able to ask you questions. My parents weren't able to do that. Um, I suppose the, the first question is, you know, a general overview I was explaining and trying to explain to like my in-laws or trying to explain to my son in, in the years to come what malignant hypothermia actually is. And, and I know some of my cousins need like a, almost a, a top up. What is it in, in the 21st century? Okay, well, um, it's the same as it's always been, Connor, in terms of what the condition is. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a genetic condition. So there's a there's a fault in one or more, one or more of the, the genes in your family um, that are important in um, the way that your skeletal muscles work. Skeletal muscles being the muscles that control the movements of your, your bones and joints. Um, and they constitute up to 40% of your body mass. So if something goes wrong with your skeletal muscles, it affects the whole body. And for somebody uh, who has this genetic um, predisposition, if they receive the commonly used anesthetic drugs, something very wrong indeed goes, uh, happens with their muscles. <clears throat> and their muscles essentially go into overdrive. So they become um, metabolically uh, uncontrolled. So it's as if uh, your muscles are trying to sprint a marathon, and they'll try and sprint a marathon until they. Uh, until they break down, and that's what happens. Um, and when the muscle starts to break down, um, substances that are normally contained within the muscle tissue leak out into the blood, um, and they can affect the heart, they can affect the kidneys. And while this is happening, um, the, the, 
activity of the muscle is generating heat. And it's the heat generation that gives malignant hypothermia its name. So the, the hypothermia means too much heat um, and malignant means essentially progressing to death. So some mm. people think it's got um, something to do with cancer because it's got the term malignant in. Um, that, isn't, uh, that isn't so. It, it is um, because if it's not halted, it will lead to death. The one thing that um, kind of has gone through a lot of the, the conversations I've had in the last couple of days with members of my family is the, the cleaning of certain equipment, the cleaning of certain machines, which in some way, shape or form, houses anesthetics uh, and whether they should be or shouldn't be cleaned for people like me and people like my family. My cousin, uh, Rory, for example, just said that he went through a general anesthetic um, well, beg your pardon, he had surgery eight years ago under general anaesthetic, but they were, on, they were able to put him under, though there was a lot of kerfuffle, to use his term. They, were, they had to clean all the equipment, um, and this has been echoed by a few different members of my, my family and stuff. That, that cleaning or that, that making sure that the, the anaesthetic doesn't have any sort of existence when, when surgery is being done, how important is that specifically now? Oh, it's incredibly important. Um... So I think possibly the first thing to, for me to emphasize is that there hasn't been an operation invented yet that can't be done in somebody who is at risk of developing MH. So the, it's the common, most commonly used anesthetic drugs cause it, but we do have alternatives um, that can be used safely. And uh, some people, some anesthetists um, use them all the time and have a lot of expertise in them. But the majority of these anaesthetists um, have less expertise. So if you were to present to your local hospital needing an operation and you gave them the, the history in your family and, and you possibly being at risk, um, then obviously that will cause um, people to, to, to sit up and take notice of you. Uh, and you're more likely to get um, a senior anaesthetist looking after you. They will need to make preparations for the operating theatre that you can be looked after safely because the, the anaesthetic agents are uh, what we call volatile substances. So they, mm -hmm. they actually um, are um, presented to us in, in, in a bottle and we put them in a, a delivery device um, that enables the anaesthetic to be picked up by the, the oxygen and air that um, you will need to be ventilated with under your anaesthetic. Um, and uh, it's these um, devices that deliver the anaesthetic that need to be removed from the um, anaesthetic machine, um, and the anaesthetic machine then needs to be flushed of these agents. So that's, that's been the traditional approach, and um, with the old-fashioned anaesthetic machines, that used to take perhaps 20 minutes or so to do, but... Um, like many things, anaesthetic machines have become more complex. They've got a lot more internal parts, and mm. it can take over an hour to, uh, to get rid of all the, the anaesthetics if we need to. Um, if we know that somebody is at risk of developing MH and there is time to do that, then that is um, probably the, the best way to go about it. Uh, but sometimes people will come into hospital needing an emergency uh, operation, we haven't got that time. One of the developments over the last five years is um, the availability of filters. 
that we can put um, on the outlet to the anaesthetic machine. And these filters have um, a, um, a, a, a compound that will absorb the uh, anaesthetic gases so that they don't reach the patient even if they are um, present in the anaesthetic machine itself. So um, the, the substance is charcoal, so they're called activated charcoal filters. We're now recommending in this guideline um, that every hospital keeps activated charcoal filters, along with dantrolene, which mm. is the antidote that you mentioned that was given to your cousin. Couldn't think of it. I could not think of the name of it there now for the life of me. Uh, well, fortunately, all anaesthetists um, won't forget what it's called. <laughs> so um, so uh, in every location where anaesthesia is administered in the, in the UK and Ireland, there will be dantrolene. And now we're recommending also that the activated charcoal filters are kept. Um, the other use for the filters is um, that they can be used in the emergency situation. So um, one of the first things that we must do when we suspect that a patient is developing MH is stop giving them the triggering drugs. Um, and we used to try and flush the machine out or change the machine, but now we can just apply these filters and within five minutes, the patient will not be receiving um, any further um, harmful triggering drug. So that, in the emergency situation, these have become a, a really great advance because time really is critical mm. when we're managing an MH reaction. One of the big questions that my family have had specifically in the last 10 years is the, the, the diagnosis, if you like, or the, the creating a positive or negative test. Because I'm so, from such a big family, you, not everybody is going to have malignant hypothermia within the family. Um, so what has happened, like I said, um, out of the, the 12 of my mother's brothers and sisters, her included, I think six went for the muscle biopsy, six went for the normal blood test. Uh, and there's been a little bit of, of a haze, a little bit of conjecture as to exactly what works, what doesn't work. The general information that we've got back is the fact that you would have to go and have the muscle biopsy to make sure you would get a 100% reading, whether you are indeed positive or negative. There is a blood test available which says, look, it can tell you quite resolutely that you're positive, but... It can tell you you're negative, but don't always trust the negative test. It's very similar to what some people are getting now with, suppose, the, the coronavirus tests, although completely different. Is that still the case? Is that still the case with diagnosing, diagnosing this? Because with myself having a son now, my, with my sister having a son, uh, my cousin having children, and, and the swathe of, of Murphy's who have this, we're not sure how do we, do we all consider that we are positive until we're told we're negative? Uh, and unless there is a, a break in the line of inheritance from somebody who has it. Um, so say, for example, um, I, my family had MH and it started with my grandfather, who was my father's father. Um, I would be at risk unless my father had been shown not to have it. So it doesn't jump through a generation. You're absolutely right. You've, you've actually made a pretty good description of the um, state of our application of um, genetic diagnosis, which is the blood test. So we have found um, the gene, the principal gene that we believe is involved in 
predisposing to malignant hypothermia. Um, but as well as finding out about this gene, we have found out that it doesn't account for every case. So the best estimates are that it accounts for between 75 and 80% um, of cases, um, which means obviously that um, some families uh, do not have access to a, a genetic test because if we haven't found the genetic change in them, we can't use it um, mm. in other members of the family. Um, so we've, we've um, also found that in some families uh, in whom we have found a change in this gene, that there are some people who have a positive muscle biopsy who do not have the gene change. Now, the um, explanation or, or, or the current thinking around the explanation for that is that there are actually, in some families, more than one change in the gene, in a gene, um, that's needed to produce the malignant hypothermia. Okay, so you, you used to think of genetics in, in very simple terms that, oh, well, you've got one faulty gene, um, and if we find that, then you've got it. If you haven't got that faulty gene, then you're clear. Um, with MH and actually an awful lot of what we thought were simple genetic conditions, that isn't the case. And there are um, perhaps in some families um, several different genetic changes that all come together to mm. produce the risk. And what we don't know is necessarily which families just require the single change and which families have more than one change. So in your family, we've found a change in the gene that we know is most commonly implicated. What we don't know, because we don't know everything we need to know about the genetics of MH, is whether there are other risk factors, genetic risk factors present in your family. And it's only when we can say for certain there are no other genetic risk factors in your family that we could use a genetic test, a blood test, to provide one of your family members with a negative diagnosis. So what would you recommend I did with my son, for example? So not obviously, pro probably not straight away, yeah. um, but as we, we'll go on to, I suppose, if, if so you'll... Let, let, me, let me clarify first, Connor, because, you know, obviously um, we're, you, you haven't told me whether you are positive or not. So will we will we like do like a, a drum roll and stuff and make it all tense here? Will we? Uh, yes, as far as I'm aware, I'm positive. Um, my I'm, I'm positive, but I, until a couple of minutes ago, I was fully aware that I'm positive, uh, and now haven't heard what you said. Um, I did the my mother, as far as I know, is a positive carrier, um, and as far as the blood test was concerned, I was also positive. But obviously, like you said, there now there could be a. If you, so if you have the change that we found in your family, you are um, high risk. So mm. for all intents and purposes, we can't change or lower that risk by doing the muscle biopsy because mm -hmm. uh, we, we, wouldn't, we don't know enough to, to do that. So we would consider you positive. You must be treated at risk of MH should you require surgery. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
approximately your son has a 50% chance of also being at risk. Okay. Um, now, in theory, we could do the blood tests and look for a, a genetic change in him. But there is nothing that we can do until he is at least 10 years of age that would change the way that we would look after him if he required an operation. Yeah. That is because if we did the blood test and it was positive, we'd treat him as positive, obviously. If we did the blood test and he was negative for the, the, the gene, we would treat him as positive yeah. because we haven't done the muscle biopsy. I totally see it as wrong. The youngest age for the muscle biopsy is 10 years, and we need them to be quite mature 10 years Mm. Age as well. There seems to be uh, within my family a lot of people. Even the term muscle biopsy makes a lot of people go, "Oh, shudder!" And any of my uncles who've had it done, uh, they've had it. Done. Some of them have had it done up to twenty years ago, and I think even the technology in place, even the the process in place, was much much less advanced than it is now. Can you talk me through what it is? Because it's quite. Although you've pr pretty much told me the chances of me being positive are quite positive, I'd probably not ever have to go and get it done now. But um, for those in, in my family who are thinking about it and those who, who are in and, and who are watching this and potentially have a family who may be in, in the situation we are, what is it and what, what, why is this the only way in which you can get that result when you need it? Um, well, it, why is it the only way? Because the problem um, is within the, the, the muscle tissue. Um, and the test was developed uh, in 1970 or discovered in 1970. And what was found was when a, a piece of muscle tissue, um, sort of about just over an inch um, in length, was um, kept alive under careful uh, conditions in the laboratory um, and in a medium that replicated the, the body fluids and then it was exposed to an anesthetic drug the uh, the muscle tissue from normal people relaxes that's what we see in a person who we anesthetize if we give some if we were to give mike a, a, an anesthetic now he would become unconscious but also his muscles would relax mm. now what happens with mh muscle in the laboratory is that it goes into spasm and it develops what we call a contractor. It becomes um, very rigid. And again, that's what we observe in somebody who's developing malignant hyperthermia. Is the that's, muscle, and that's the the essence and change yeah. in temperature and, and hyperthermia you were talking about earlier. Yeah, and it, so um, the the gene um, that is implicated um, is, the, or the protein that that gene makes, is very much more abundant in the skeletal muscle than in any other tissue. Uh, which is why we can't use any other tissue. We can't use a bit of skin, for example, because the protein that's made by this gene is, is only present in minuscule amounts. So we need the muscle tissue. Okay, yeah, that makes... That's, that's yeah. the first, time, first time I've heard that in explained at all. Okay, uh, so in terms of, in terms of the, what we do, as I said, it, it is quite a, um, a long bit of muscle. Mm -hmm. um, Fortunately, each piece that we test doesn't need to be very thick. In fact, we don't want it to be thick because it doesn't survive very well out of the body. So it, it's two to three centimeters in length um, and two to three millimeters in the other dimensions, thick and wide. 
um, we need about a gram of tissue. Um, and in order to get that tissue in good condition, uh, we need to make a cut in the leg. Just Lovely. above the knee. Lovely. Um, All of my uncles love this, love hearing this story. Yeah. Um, and nowadays we make that cut um, under a type of local anaesthetic. So it doesn't involve a general anaesthetic any longer. And the local kind of counterproductive if it did, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, uh, I guess one of the advantages of um, doing a general anaesthetic as we used to, have to, was that we could demonstrate to people that, okay, you may have MH, but we have just given you a safe general anaesthetic. Um, but, yeah, in, in for any operation now, when we can avoid a general anaesthetic, we do so because general anaesthetics for anybody carry a small amount of risk. Um, so we can lower that risk by using uh, a local anaesthetic. It's actually also very useful for MH patients to show them that they can have an operation under a type of local anaesthetic because local anaesthetics are a really good choice for MH patients. If surgery is amenable to a local anaesthetic, um, then it's a very good choice. It's a very safe tell, tell, tell my brother that who had to go through a knee operation and sit and watch them do it when he had an epidural. He was like, yeah, I, part of me would say, no, no, knock me out, knock me out. But obviously me being an, an uber positive carrier, as you're telling me now, that can't happen to me in that regard, like uh, unless you're using one of the substitutes. He didn't have to, he didn't have to watch <laughs> it, um, but he chose to watch it. So um, there we go. So he, no, he's laying it on a bit thick there with the story, I think. <laughs> Hopefully he's watching us. I think he will be watching us. Yeah, want to go for your uh, last question and then we'll sort of uh, yeah. talk about the um, key points on the guideline. Go for it. Yeah, please, if that's okay with you. I think one of the big, the big questions, in fact, like I've almost two pages on this here, so I'll be quick, Mike. Um, it's the... It sort of mixes in the two things you said when you said that a lot of GPs don't know about it. And then what that means is, in essence, um, when it comes to having children and the complications that are currently exist within having children, um, midwives, consultants, there's a lot of sort of gray areas in it. And I've been, we've been very fortunate that we've brought two lovely wee boys into the world, myself, eight weeks ago, my sister's wee boy um, four months ago. But very strangely, they had two very different experiences when it came to this. So my sister, um, who was referred to in an anaesthetist, um, and that's very hard for me to say, even though I'm in the company of two at the moment, um, where she, in essence, we believe became consultant-led uh, with the birth of her boy because of the malignant hypothermia. Um, she had a chat with the anaesthetist. Doctors knew um, in the labor ward, um, she was consistently reassured. Uh, there was little or no mention of, of, of the offspring, which she was due to give birth to. Um, and then it kind of it filtered down in there. She had quite a, there was quite a lot of questions. Um, she was reassured that they knew what they were doing. Whereas my wife's situation was she had one conversation with midwives, one with the doctor, and neither of them were aware of not only what to do, but what malignant hypothermia was. One of the lovely things about her experience was, strange to call it lovely, is that they were very open and honest and said, look, we don't know what this is. Um, there was a little bit of in information. Then we had to, we moved from Manchester back to Belfast just before um, my son Finn was born. And we were quite alarmed and I suppose surprised that there was very little information on this. 
And when, when we did get some information, we got told, one of the things my wife got told was, look, you're not related to me by blood, so you're going to be fine. But I had to, me personally, had to flag it up and say, well, hold on, my son is going to have a 50% chance of having this if anything goes wrong and he requires an anesthetic. And I'd be, I, I was very surprised that there wasn't a more detailed analysis done on both occasions. I have cousins who are having children or just had children, and they've got sort of a similar view on this. Is there anything we can be doing? Is, is, are these guidelines the perfect things that we have now to hand over and go, read them, I'll talk to you in a couple of days? Yeah, um, I, I think that's a, a really good start. I mean, the, 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 the MH unit in Leeds has been up and running since 1970, when, when the first test was known. Um, all anaesthetists in, in the UK know where we are. Um, many anaesthetists will um, call us for advice. Um, most often it is, um, I think I know what I need to do, I just want to check with you. Uh, and we're really, really happy. Um, one of the features of, of um, the association guidelines uh, since 1990 is that it, it has um, provided our um, emergency contact number that is manned by one of the MH consultants 24 hours um, a day, seven days a week. Um, we also have um, a website which is flagged up in the guideline. Uh, I don't know, have I got a screen share on here or is that too ambitious, Mike? Uh, yeah, you can share your screen. Um, let me just see if I can um, get that up. No, it's to say host is disabled screen sharing. <laughs> I think it's up there or down there when this is all yeah, edited. There you go. You try again. Yeah. Right, okay. Let's have a look. Um, I'm quite impressed. I'm quite impressed by your exercise bike, if I have to be honest, Dr. Hopkins. Yeah, well, yeah the, I don't use the ex exercise bike. That's too hard work. I've got a cross trainer behind me, which is. Uh, oh, that's a cross trainer. Oh, yes. Forgive me. Cross Forgive me. Very fancy. Yeah. So I don't know whether you can see that screen yeah. has come up. Okay, so um, ukmhr.ac.uk. And so there are sections there for patients, for GPs, pharmacists, nurses, midwives, anaesthetists, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so there's a lot of information on there. Um, it's got our contact details if uh, the information you're after isn't there. It's got some frequently asked questions. Um, so th there is a lot of information out there and, and hopefully with the publication of the guideline, um, more people, both patients and doctors will um, be able to um, access information. And just just one very quick question, sorry Mike, is with regards to the, the, the wearing of medical alert bracelets, with regards to um, making medical uh, professionals aware of the situation, any advice there? How important are they? Um, is, are there any other ways where, where you can records sort of change from, from area to area? Is, are they as important as they always were? Yes, uh, absolutely. So um, we, there used to be a, um, a charity uh, for MH patients in, um, uh, in, in the UK, the British Malignant Hypothermia Association, uh, which unfortunately um, folded because um, the enthusiasts who ran it 
um, basically ran out of steam, I think. They did a fantastic job for many years and actually funded that website that I, I've just show, shared with you. Um, and they used to provide um, warning tags. Um, fortunately, with um, the, the likes of um, online shopping, I, I won't mention a certain online shop, um, but if you um, put into your search engine uh, malignant hypothermia warning tag or warning bracelet, um, you will very um, easily be directed to sites where you can order them very cheaply. Um, and we do recommend that you wear them. If you're brought into a, an emergency department and unable to communicate, um, it is absolutely vital that somebody knows that you have MH because you may need um, anaesthetic drugs administered to save your life in the emergency room. So these tags, the emergency staff will also search your pockets, search your wallets. Um, so we do have warning cards, credit card sized um, cards that you can keep on your person in your wallet. Mm -hmm. You can, if you have children, you can give them to your, uh, to their schools. So the schools know what to do. Um, so yeah, absolutely vital that you uh, enable people to know that you are at risk if you are at risk. So when my wife shouts at me for not wearing my bracelet, you're in essence agreeing with her and saying that she's completely right. So she's won an argument courtesy of uh, one of the uh, the highest in his field. Cheers for that, doctor. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, you know, if you go to the website, you will you will see one of our um, fantastic patients who's had it tattooed on her arm. Oh wow. Um, yeah, so you can go to extreme lengths. You wouldn't uh, necessarily yeah. recommend that. But um, when my mom told me never to get a tattoo, this is the one I can actually justify to her, is it? Yeah, you can have it on your forehead, then every anesthetist will definitely see it. Good, good, good. Yeah, no, they answer my question. I think, yeah, I, it's it's making sure that you know we this information that we're, that you're that you're talking about today, and I'll hand back over to Mike now that that it is. It is out there and families like mine are aware of it and also medical professionals are aware of it. And there's so many different, you know, instances of different medical uh, situations to be in. So um, we are one of, I'm sure, a million different things. So um, if there was anything we could do to help them, um, which means I have to wear this medical alert bracelet, which means my wife's right again. I mean, that's absolutely. Yeah, just, just emphasize again that, you know, we, we receive calls from, uh, patients, GPs, doctors, nurses, um, all the time. And we're very happy to uh, for them to contact us. That's been an absolutely fascinating discussion. To, to, I've been sat here enjoying listening to that, actually. It's been really, really great and, and really new for us as well uh, to, to, to do this format, which I think has worked really well. And, and I hope we can do this again in the future sometime. Um, I'll just ask um, one final question to Professor Hopkins, which is, what are your um, key messages for anaesthetists and, and patients as a result of this guideline, which will be going into the uh, to the May issue of the journal uh, very soon? Yeah. Um, so I, th I think for doctors um, is um, always have MH in the back of your mind for anaesthetists. Um, and uh, so the second is to be vigilant. And the third is to recognize that it could happen when you're anaesthetizing a patient. So there have been instances of, of anaesthetists who um, perhaps delayed the initiation of treatment because they thought it couldn't possibly be happening to them. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it can happen and it does happen. 
and um, speed of diagnosis or speed of recognition and onset of treatment is absolutely crucial. Um, for patients, um, I think you can be reassured that uh, you've got the best educated anaesthetic workforce in the world, in the UK, um, and especially about MH. Um, the key is having a diagnosis. So once uh, you have a diagnosis, then we know how to look after you uh, in the safest way for you as an individual. And for those um, people who are part of an MH family or perhaps have had an anaesthetic problem in the past um, and haven't that, had that followed up um, fully, um, then uh, go to your GP and ask them to um, uh, refer you to us so that we can give you the information you need for safe anaesthesia in the future. Well, thank you very much for both of your time. Um, it's um, it's been really great. I've really enjoyed it. I'm um, sure you have as well. Connor, did you enjoy that? Yeah, and it's it's something that we we will we'll continue, I suppose, to have this conversation. But um, it's something that we I think we've we've needed an update on this um for since, like you said, the, the early two thousands when this um was published, and it's just nice to be able to openly talk about something that it's it's kind of always. And we know we've known we've had it in our family. We've all we've all talked about it, but sometimes trying to get a very specific conversation about it with it with nothing but facts and not just conjecture is is very refreshing. So thanks for that. Great. Well, thank you very much, everyone. The paper will be available. Um, it's available now. It'll be in the May issue. Um, we'll be turning this into a podcast, which will be on uh, Apple, iTunes, and Spotify as well. We'll share the link to that very soon. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers. The Anesthesia Podcast. <laughs>